Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. For me, the next few episodes represent an end of a journey, as these are the episodes for which this podcast was partly created. For years, I've wanted to write a long-form article looking back at David Putnam's short tenure at Columbia Pictures to reassess what I've always felt was a good guy getting a bad rap for trying to create art in a corporate atmosphere. To get some of these very good but long-forgotten films a little bit of a spotlight, and to give Putnam his long-deserved due as the true final movie maker to run a Hollywood studio before the MBAs really took over. Before we begin, I would not have been able to write this episode without the help of Andrew Yule's exceptional but not always kind Putnam biography, Fast Fade, which has been a part of my film library since its release in 1989, Stephen Prince's section on Putnam entitled The David Putnam Debacle from his 1999 book A New Pot of Gold, Hollywood Under the Electronic Rainbow, 1980-1989, and many articles from the movie trades and major city newspapers published between 1986 and 1988. These were all helpful in making sure I had an accurate list of the titles Putnam made or acquired at Columbia, as well as some background into who David Putnam was and how he operated. This first episode will give you some background into who David Putnam was. David Terence Putnam was born on the 25th of February in 1941 in the Southgate section of northern London. The United Kingdom was in its third calendar year of World War II, and things were not easy for Father Leonard, who was one of the first photographers to sign up to be a war correspondent when the war broke out, and homemaker Mother Marie, but they would make do. After the war, despite both being somewhat psychologically damaged by the war, they would try to provide their children David and younger sister Leslie the best life they could. After graduation from the premier private school in North London, where he would attend on scholarship due to his outstanding grades, Putnam would spend five years working as an account executive at the London-based advertising firm Collett Dickinson Pierce, where he would meet a number of the filmmakers for whom he would work with in the future, including Alan Marshall, Alan Parker, Hugh Hudson, and Ridley Scott. In the late 1960s, Putnam would move from CDP to working for British production company Good Times, with his first feature-producing effort being Wars Hussein's 1971 romantic drama Melody, written by Alan Parker and featuring the music of the Bee Gees. A year later, he would produce Jacques Demy's second English-language film, The Pied Piper, and in 1973, he'd have his first hit film in the David Essex starring That'll Be the Day. Putnam would also produce a number of documentaries during this time frame, including Philippe Mora's 1975 Oscar-nominated Brother Can You Spare a Dime, Ray Connolly's 1975 James Dean, the First American Teenager, as well as two films about the Nazi regime, 1973's Double-Headed Eagle, Hitler's Rise to Power 1918 to 1933, and 1974's Swastika. Putnam would produce two musical biopics for Ken Russell, 1974's Mahler and 1975's Listomania, 
The failure of both films would cause Putnam to leave Good Times and create his own production company, which he would call Enigma Films. But before he'd leave Good Times, he'd produce one more movie for them. And while it wasn't a big hit, it would become a beloved classic. You give a little love and it all comes back to you. Bugsy Malone was Alan Parker's first film as director, and it would set him off on one of the greatest filmmaking journeys any director would ever have. Putnam would also produce Parker's second film, Midnight Express, which would earn Putnam his first Oscar nomination for Best Picture. In 1980, Putnam would help launch the filmmaking career of Adrian Lyne, who would go on to make Flashdance, Fatal Attraction, and Indecent Proposal, when they would make the Jodie Foster coming-of-age drama Foxes. But it would be his next film that would change the course of his personal and professional career. Chariots of Fire was something very close to David Putnam's heart. He had been looking for a story in a similar vein to the much-beloved 1966 Best Picture winner A Man for All Seasons, a quintessentially British film about a man who follows his conscience, regardless of the circumstances or potential outcomes. And he found that story quite by accident. He and his wife were renting a home in Los Angeles in 1977, while he was setting up the production of Midnight Express for Columbia Pictures. When Putnam became sick with the flu, housebound and bored, he picked up a reference book on the Olympics that was at the rented house and came across the story of Eric Liddell, a Scottish athlete who refused to run in the 100-meter qualifying race at the 1924 Paris Olympics because it was being held on a Sunday. Liddell was widely considered to be a favorite to win the gold in this event, but his devotion to God would not allow him to run on the Christian Sabbath. Instead, he would compete in and eventually win the gold in the 400 meters race, which was not his strongest event. He would end up setting a new world's record during those Olympics. Putnam would hire British actor Colin Wheland, who had just segged over to screenwriting with the 1979 John Schlesinger film Yanks, to write the screenplay for Chariots of Fire. Wheeland and Putnam spent two years researching the events surrounding the Paris Olympics. Early on, they decided to focus on the stories of three runners at those Olympics, Liddell, Harold Abrams, 
an English Jew who runs to overcome prejudice, and Douglas Lowe, who took home the gold in the 800 meters in Paris and was being presented as a privileged blue blood athlete. Getting the life rights for the real athletes would be a challenge. Liddell had died in a Japanese civilian internment camp in China in February 1945, having devoted his life after the Olympics to being a missionary teacher in the country he had been born in. They were able to secure the life rights to Abrahams rather quickly, but he would pass away in January 1978 before Putnam and Wheeland would have the opportunity to talk to him. However, Wheeland was invited to Abrahams' memorial service a few weeks later, which would inspire how Wheeland would frame the story from present day to the early 1920s. And Lowe wanted nothing to do with the movie, refusing to sign away his life rights. Wheeland would eventually replace Lowe with a fictional character, Lord Andrew Lindsay. Wheeland would also take out ads in London newspapers, asking people for the remembrance of events that had happened 54 years earlier. View photos and watch footage from the 1924 Olympics at the National Film Archives, and he would interview as many people as possible connected to Liddell and Abrams, who were still alive. One person he spoke with was the son of Aubrey Montague, who ran the steeplechase for Britain in 1924. Mr. Montague's son had seen the advert in the paper and provided the screenwriter with copies of the letters his father had sent home to the family during the Olympics. Except for some minor pronoun adjustments, the screenwriter would use a number of Montague's letters in the movie verbatim. To direct, Putnam would once again go back to his Collett Dickinson Pierce days, hiring commercial and documentary director Hugh Hudson to make his dramatic narrative feature debut. Hudson was resolute in wanting to hire lesser-known actors to portray the two main characters while supplementing the supporting characters with British acting royalty. Scottish actor Ian Charleston was discovered by Putnam and Wyland, performing in a Royal Shakespeare Company production, and both men immediately recognized they had found their Eric Liddell. What the two of them did not know was that Charleston had already heard about the role from his father and had been trying to set up an audition, feeling the role of Liddell was perfectly suited for him. Ben Cross, who would portray Abrahams, was also found on stage, playing Billy Flynn in a West End production of Chicago. But 20th Century Fox, who were going to be putting up half the production budget in exchange for distribution rights outside the United States, insisted on a couple of name American actors in the cast. So Putnam would oblige by casting Brad Davis, who had just broken through being the lead in Putnam's Midnight Express, and Dennis Christopher, who had recently starred in the surprise box office smash Breaking Away, in small parts as American runners Jackson Schultz and Charlie Paddock. Before production began in early 1980, all the actors portraying runners would be put through an intensive three-month training camp and kept isolated from the rest of the world, so they would form a strong sense of camaraderie before shooting began. Production began on the film on April 14, 1980, and would continue through the end of July. The entire film would be shot throughout the United Kingdom, mostly in and around Liverpool. The famous slow-motion running-on-the-beach scenes 
would be shot on the beaches just off the 18th hole at the famed St. Andrews Golf Course on the east coast of Scotland. Post-production on the film ran through the fall and winter, yet the film still did not have an American distribution deal in place. Fox had the right of first refusal for the American rights, but they had not pulled the trigger just yet. In fact, it wouldn't be until after the world premiere of the film, a royal film performance attended by Queen Elizabeth II and the Queen Mother on March 30, 1981, that the American rights would be picked up by Alan Ladd Jr., the American film executive who greenlit Star Wars while at Fox, who had a distribution deal for his Ladd company at Warner Brothers. The film would open across the United Kingdom on May 15th, and it would become amongst the most popular films of all time in the country. A few days after that, the movie would be shown in competition at the Cannes Film Festival, the sixth time in eight years a David Putnam production would compete there, and where Ian Holm would be awarded the Best Supporting Actor Prize. It would also be voted the most popular film at the Toronto International Film Festival, and it would be selected to open the New York Film Festival. There would be one change made to the film between the British release and the American. After spending months doing targeted promotional screenings for the National Education Association, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the American Jewish Congress, and former Olympians, amongst others, Ladd and Warners were worried about receiving a G rating for the movie, which they saw as being a potential barrier to mass audience acceptance. So they were able to persuade Putnam and Hudson to make one very minor change to the film, adding what was determined to be a judicious expletive by a minor character, which indeed secured the film a PG rating. The movie would open in America on Friday, September 25th, in exclusive runs at the Bruin Theater in Westwood and one theater in Chicago, and at the Cinema One in New York City on Saturday the 26th after its premiere at the New York Film Festival the previous day. In only three screens, for three days at two of them and two days at the third, the film grossed $69,000 at about three twenty-five per ticket, which would have been where New York City ticket prices were in September 1981, that would be nearly 500 people at each of the 44 screenings during that time frame. Ladd and Warner Brothers played it very safe with the film. On January 1st, 1982, the film had been playing in theaters for 15 weeks and was still only playing in 34 theaters. The nominations for the 54th Academy Awards were announced on Thursday, February 11th. Reds, the sweeping epic from Hollywood golden boy Warren Beatty, was the top nominated film with 12, and on Golden Pond, featuring the first-ever pairing of Hollywood legends Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda, had 10. Milos Forman's Ragtime and Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark tied for third-most nominations with 8, and Chariots, got seven nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director. It was in anticipation of the Oscar nominations that the Ladd Company and Warner Brothers finally gave Chariots a moderate expansion from 70 theaters to 283 the Friday before the announcement. 
It would continue to expand a little bit every weekend between the nomination's announcement and the actual award ceremony on Sunday, March 29th. While Warren Beatty won the Oscar for Best Director for Reds, many in Hollywood were shocked to see Chariots of Fire win Best Picture and three additional awards, Best Original Screenplay, Best Costume Design, and Best Score. But it wouldn't be until three weeks after the Academy Awards and a full 30 weeks after its opening weekend for Chariots of Fire to hit its widest point of release, playing in 810 theaters the weekend of April 16th. Yet, despite the critical adoration, the awards, the ubiquitous theme song playing everywhere, and the phenomenal word of mouth, Chariots of Fire would never be the number one film in America in any week it played. The closest it would come would be number two in its 24th weekend. The movie would play in theaters for 66 weeks and finish its amazing American theatrical run with a total gross of $58.97 million. Adjusted for inflation, that would be almost $191 million in November 2020 numbers. Not bad for a film that only cost $5.5 million to make. From there, David Putnam would often be considered by many Brits as the savior of British cinema. Whether or not that's true, Putnam certainly did leave a major imprint on cinema during the first half of the decade. After Chariots, he would produce Bill Forsyth's Local Hero in 1982, Roland Joffe's The Killing Fields, and Pat O'Connor's sadly overlooked Irish drama Cal, featuring Helen Moran in one of her very best roles in 1984, and Joffe's The Mission in 1986. American distribution for those four films would be handled by Warner Brothers as part of a first-look deal set up in the wake of the success of Chariots of Fire. And between those four films, they would be nominated for 33 British Academy Awards, winning 12, and nominated for 14 Oscars, winning 4. It would be during post-production of The Mission that Putnam's personal lawyer, Tom Lewin, took a meeting with Faye Vincent, then the chairman of Columbia Pictures, at Vincent's office in New York City. Lewin and Vincent's story about the meetings complement each other with one crucial detail disputed. Lewin says Vincent requested the meeting. Vincent says it's the other way around. But either way, the two men did meet and have lunch at the Columbia Pictures office building at 711 Fifth Avenue in New York City in the spring of 1986. And the topic of conversation did quickly come around to the open position of studio head at Columbia Pictures. Guy McElwain had been in the position for only a couple of years, and during his regime he had managed to only greenlight one film that would become a box office hit, the sequel to Karate Kid. McElwain would not be in office when the film was released in June of 1986. He would lose his job over the massive budget overages on Ishtar, which was being produced by Warren Beatty, for whom McElwain had worked for as a publicist during the Bonnie and Clyde days. Over the course of shooting, the budget for Ishtar had ballooned from just under $27.5 million to over $55 million. Columbia had run for several months without a studio chief when Vincent and Lewin met, 
and quickly came to an agreement that would install Putnam as the new chief of Columbia Pictures. But Putnam had certain demands that would need to be met before he would agree to become the head. Stipulations that Paramount Pictures was supposedly not willing to grant when they supposedly sought to install the producer as the head of that studio a few months earlier. Those expectations were as follows. Number one, complete and total autonomy to make the movies he wanted to make. Faye Vincent said no problem. That's what studio heads are hired to do, after all. Number two, he wanted to leave the United States with an after-tax net capital of at least $3 million to take back to England. That would throw up a red flag for the Columbia Pictures chairman. What did that mean? And number three, that he wanted to run the studio from Los Angeles for only three years before returning to England. Vincent was okay with that too, provided that didn't mean Putnam would actually leave the job and the company after only three years. Lewin set up a meeting between Vincent and Putnam in London, which went rather well. There would be a further meeting with senior management at Coca-Cola in Atlanta, and the deal was sealed. Putnam would head the studio and have absolute independence when it came to all projects budgeted up to $30 million. He would stay in Los Angeles for a period of three years, which could be renegotiated later to three and a half years, at which time he could either move into another role at Columbia or move his offices to England while continuing to run the studio. And Putnam would be in control of international marketing and distribution as well. That last point did not sit well with the then current president of international marketing and distribution, a Brit named Patrick Williamson, who would stay on to assist Putnam, but warned Faye Vincent that the entire appointment of Putnam as studio head would be a costly mistake. And, in many ways, it would be. One of Koch's biggest priorities for Columbia in 1986 was getting the stalled Ghostbusters sequel back on track. The movie had earned Columbia hundreds of millions of dollars in rentals, and Columbia had not had any movie even half as popular with audiences in the two years since its release. Putnam wanted nothing to do with any Ghostbusters movie. While he had grown up on a steady diet of American movies in London in the 1950s and 1960s, movies like Ghostbusters were everything he hated about the film industry. Bloated budget movies made to keep stars happy. But a movie like Ghostbusters 2 would have been budgeted for more than $30 million, so it would have been out of his range anyway. No, what David Putnam treasured more than anything else about being the studio chief at a major studio like Columbia was being able to make a number of movies at once when he wanted, the way he wanted, instead of having to go to investors, hat in hand, begging for money, only to be able to make one or maybe two movies a year and having to compromise his vision in order to please those investors. What he also liked having was a giant global apparatus at his fingertips, able to give the go-ahead to a number of European filmmakers to make non-English language films, because he was looking at a world market, not just one or two coveted territories. After some comments about Bill Murray and his agent, 
Michael Ovitz, inarguably at the time the most powerful man in Hollywood, that painted both men in an unflattering light, Putnam would try to smooth things over with them and his bosses in Atlanta and New York by announcing in April 1987 that Ghostbusters 2 would go into production in November, which caught director Ivan Reitman by surprise as he hadn't even had a chance to read Dan Aykroyd's most recent draft of the screenplay. Murray and Ovitz weren't the only people Putnam managed to upset during his time there. Putnam made the huge mistake early on in rebuking both Ray Stark, the powerful producer who had produced a number of hit films for Columbia over the previous 20 years, including Funny Girl, The Owl and the Pussycat, The Way We Were, Funny Lady, Murder by Death, The Goodbye Girl, and Annie, and Stark's partner, billionaire Herbert A. Allen, who had owned Columbia Pictures for a number of years until selling it, to Coca-Cola in 1982. Putnam was also not a big fan of big producer deals, where studios spent millions of dollars every year for them to develop material, only to see some of those movies go to other studios. Stark hadn't made a movie for Columbia since 1985's Hal Ashby bombed The Slugger's Wife, and had two movies in production for Universal Studios when Putnam first arrived including the Michael J. Fox comedy The Secret of My Success, which would become a fairly sizable hit in the spring of 1987. Also during his tenure at Columbia, Putnam found himself in an unprecedented spot of being the head of one studio and being the producer of a movie at another studio, needing to occasionally spend time focusing on making a Warner Brothers movie be the best it can be. Roland Joffe's The Mission, his follow-up to the Oscar-winning The Killing Fields, had been a long and arduous shoot across South America, from Argentina to Brazil to Colombia and Paraguay, and its drawn-out production during late 1985 and early 1986 was one of the reasons Putnam decided to take a desk job as a studio head. Why put up with all those headaches, putting your heart and soul and two years of your life into something whose destiny is out of your control, when you can be the one who is in control. While the mission would not be a successful film the same way Killing Fields was, it would be nominated for seven Oscars at the 59th Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Cinematography. This left the people working with Putnam in a quandary. Do you root for your boss, even though it's not your studio's film? Columbia, after all, only had three nominations in total that year, one in the Best Adapted Screenplay category for Stand By Me, and two in the Best Original Song category for Karate Kid 2 and That's Life. That was as many as Sister Studio had with just Peggy Sue Got Married, and also equal to Dano De Laurentiis's new startup DEG with Crimes of the Heart. The Mission an opulently shot drama about Jesuit missionaries in 18th century South America would only win one award for Chris Menges' cinematography, while the three Columbia entries were shut out. Putnam's days were numbered in September 1987 when Coca-Cola announced their two distributors, Columbia Pictures and TriStar Pictures, would be merging into one company, Columbia Pictures Entertainment, to be headed not by Putnam, but by TriStar's head, Victor Kaufman, 
The two companies would still be producing films under their separate labels, but marketing and distribution arms would be merged into one. Conceivably, Putnam would still be in charge of Columbia, but instead of answering to Faye Vincent in the Coca-Cola executive offices, he'd now have to answer to his, at the moment, equal, but of a smaller company, Kaufman, down the hall. This aggression, to borrow from the wise Jeffrey Lebowski, would not stand. Technically, Coke sold Columbia to TriStar for $3.1 billion, but selling a company you own to another company you own is a zero-sum game. The move itself had very little, if anything, to do with Putnam specifically. After all, not one of his first slate of movies had even opened in theaters yet. You see, Coca-Cola had taken a big hit to their stock price in the late summer of 1987, when it was announced Columbia would be taking a $40 million write-down on Ishtar. After that, Coke had decided maybe being in the movie and television business wasn't a part of their core operations. So, in addition to combining Columbia and TriStar, they would also bring together all the various production companies they owned a stake in, in preparation to sell them all off together. Coke had already started acquiring or started up a number of smaller boutique labels during this time, including Castle Rock, a production company co-founded by Stand By Me director Rob Reiner, Nelson Entertainment, a joint venture between Columbia and two Canadian-based British film producers, and Triumph Films, another joint venture, which had originally been founded in 1982 with a French distributor, Gamon, that would help bring foreign films to America. All of these deals would increase the number of films Columbia and TriStar would be releasing in any given year, which would add value to the library and make any future sale more attractive. And in 1989, the Japanese electronics giant Sony would purchase all of Columbia Pictures Entertainment for $3.4 billion. But what upset Putnam most about the new company setup in early September 1987 wasn't that he was, in effect, being demoted. He was quietly furious that he learned about it, like most of the town, from the Hollywood trade publications. No one from Coke had even bothered to call him to talk to him about it. Rather than wait to see what happened next, he would call his lawyer, Tom Lewin, who assured Putnam that there was a breach of contract by this move, and that he could get Putnam who, along with his wife, was not very happy in Los Angeles, out. The exit deal was completed in a matter of days, and Putnam would leave the company at the end of September, with the $3 million he was promised he would get at the end of his original deal. Putnam and his wife would take a holiday for a few weeks, including having dinner with their daughter in London, before returning to Los Angeles to pack up their home and return to England. So how many movies did David Putnam actually greenlight or acquire during his short 13-month stay as the head of Columbia Pictures? A November 1989 article in the Los Angeles Times about his replacement, Don Steele, suggested that Steele spent most of her time and energy as president of Columbia Pictures the previous two years dealing with what she said were 33 movies left behind by Putnam. 
And in our next episodes, we'll talk about those movies, both the ones that Columbia would release, sometimes years after Putnam had left, and some which would be sold to other distributors. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast had been written, produced, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.